this morning we are starting a series on the fruit of the Spirit. If you've been with us uh, this year, you will know that we've been working our way through uh, the book of Galatians, and uh, Jason ended our study last week, but we're going back uh, one chapter, and we're going to take an extended look at uh, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists for us in Galatians 5.22. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Most weeks what we'll do is we'll take one of those fruit and we'll look at it individually. We'll, we'll come at it from a, another passage in Scripture to see what the Bible has to say about that. Uh, but this morning I want to start our series off by looking at this passage as a whole. Uh, to look at the fruit of the Spirit as a whole and give us some guiding principles that we will come back to uh, during the series. I want to do this because, um, at least in my life, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about the fruit of the Spirit what I typically think about them and how I've uh, heard them and read them in the past. But if you'll notice in the passage that we'll read this morning in a few minutes, that there are two lists. Uh, We have, first up, we have the works of the flesh. It's a list of attitudes, a list of behaviors that we would call vices. These are things that we want to avoid in our life. And a few verses later, we have another list. We have the fruit of the Spirit. These are all things in which we would agree that we want more of in our life. So it's easy to read these verses and to think that the exclusive point that Paul is making is that I need to stop doing list number one, and I need to start doing the second list. I need to stop the works of the flesh, and I need to start doing the fruit of the Spirit. And when we do this, We view life much like Benjamin Franklin viewed his life. If you know anything about the life of Benjamin Franklin, he was eccentric, he was brilliant in so many ways, but he was naive in regard to his moral ability. In his autobiography, autobiography, one of his chapters is about his pursuit of arriving at moral perfection. I'm going to read a few sentences from a chapter in his autobiography entitled, A Plan for Attaining Moral Perfection. This is from Ben Franklin. It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew, or I thought I knew, what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found out I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. For Ben Franklin, it seemed simple enough. I need to stop doing certain things, and I need to start doing others. I know right from wrong, so let's just make a list. Let's get to work. So he listed 13 virtues. Things like frugality, and justice, and moderation, and humility. And his plan was to work on one virtue per week for an entire year. So for one week, he would devote his entire uh, effort and attention into becoming more humble. And so he created a chart. And the days of the week crossed the top, and he would make a mark on the chart for every time he lacked in humility for that day. And so the formula was simple enough, with enough knowledge, with enough hard work, that he could achieve moral perfection. And so I'd ask you, is that how you view the fruit of the Spirit? You think, well, I know right from wrong. 
I know list one is bad and list two is good. Now I just need to set off on doing more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. It's the beginning of summer, and so you might say, well, this is going to be the summer of moral perfection for me. I'm going to create a fruit of the Spirit chart. I'm going to put it on my wall. I'm going to get a calendar out. And every week, I'll assign one fruit per week. I'll create a hashtag, and I'll update social media with all of my progress. And each week, I'm going to devote myself to attaining more of one of these virtues. I'll take inventory. Every night, I will note where I have failed in this area. This will be my summer of moral improvement. But did you notice the subject of all of those sentences? You are at the center of that work. It's your effort. It's your work. There's no mention of Jesus, no mention of the gospel, no mention of the forgiveness of sins. But yet it is so tempting for us to want to view the fruit of the Spirit in this way, as this is our plan for moral perfection. But I want to ask you, is that what we really need? Is that what you and I need? Do we just need more willpower, more effort? And I would, con- I would contend, and I believe the Bible would agree, that we need more than just more willpower. We need something better than just a handy chart to mark our progress. And that actually, for me to tell you, you need to stop doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff, that's actually not freedom. That's not freedom at all. That's not what Paul has been writing about in the book of Galatians. For me to tell you to stop doing bad stuff and to start doing good stuff, it's actually bad news for you. It's bad news for me because it's more slavery. It's really giving you a law that you cannot keep. And so we won't be handing out charts this summer. We won't join Ben Franklin on his plan to attain moral perfection. But what I think we will find as we study the fruit of the Spirit is that it's actually very good news for us. It's not a checklist of moral virtues that we are to attain, but the fruit of the Spirit is actually a picture of a heart that has blossomed, a blossoming heart that has been liberated by the gospel of grace. And so, by way of extended introduction, let's read our text this morning, Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26. So hear God's word for us. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, purity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. 
Father, we know that you alone are able to change our hearts and change what we love. And so as your children, we ask that you would change us, that we would love the things that you command and that we would desire those things which you promised to us in the gospel. And that in this world where things are complex and changing, that our hearts would be fixed upon you and that we would find our true joy in you. And so we ask that you would now speak to us through your word, that you would give us ears to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could change one thing about your life, what would it be? If you could change one thing about your behavior, you might say, well, I have this habit. I've got this hang-up. I've got this behavior that I just can't quit. As much as I've tried, I, I can't stop. For example, you would say, I wish I wasn't so angry all the time. I just get angry at everybody all the time, and it just controls me so much. I'm controlled by my anger. I wish I could get rid of it. Or you might say, I wish I wasn't so anxious. I can't sleep at night because I'm, I'm worried, sick about everyone and everything. I wish I wasn't so anxious. We all have things that we want to change in our character, things that we wish weren't true of us, things we want to change. Ben Franklin did. We all do. And you might be here this morning and you're not a Christian, but still true of you. You want to change. Maybe that's why you showed up here this morning as you got something in your life you want to change. And if you're not a Christian, what I hope that you'll see this morning and as we look through this series is that real change is only possible through the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ, and that you'll see that he freely offers himself to you in the gospel. But the question is not do we want to change. The question we really need to consider is how do we change? How do we make lasting change? How do we make lasting impact, a difference in our character? Not just temporary behavior modification, but real change. And I think this passage answers that question for us. It gives us a picture of who we are and a picture of how we grow. And there's a lot to say about this topic because it gets into the realm of sanctification. But So I want us to think about Christian growth. How do Christians grow? And I'm going to think about it in four parts. It's speed, it's signs, it's shape, and it's source. So speed, sign, shape, and source. So first, let's look at the speed of growth that we can experience. Have you ever noticed all of the gardening illustrations that the Bible uses to talk about spiritual growth? If you ever kept a garden, you'll know that it do- fruit doesn't appear overnight. I mean, many times it can take years for the first fruit to appear on a tree. Many Christians would testify the same in their own life. It takes years for fruit to appear. We take the long view when it comes to growth in our own life. And we admit that this is maddening to us. We want to see results immediately. We don't like to wait. In our house, in our laundry room, we have a board on the wall that we use to measure my son's growth. And so every six months or so, on their birthday, uh, around then, every year, whatever, we'll Take them up there, and we'll see how much they've grown. And they stand up really tall, and they try to stretch their necks out as much as they can to exaggerate their growth. And they turn around, and they see they've they've grown. It's measurable. They can see that they've grown. 
in the last year. You probably have something similar in your house. We had something at my house growing up. But if you measure every six months or so, it's pretty easy to see that they're growing. But can you imagine what would happen if we took them in there every day? They'd wake up in the morning and they would go to the growth chart and they would look. Can you imagine how discouraging that would be for a five-year-old? Day after day, he would go in there and it seemed like nothing was happening. He's like, Dad, are you not feeding me enough food? Nothing's going on. I'm not growing at all. It's been a week and I've not grown. He would grow impatient with his own growth. But just like measuring my kid's height, growing as a Christian is best seen over the long haul, not day by day. It seems that the more that we obsess over the question, am I growing? How am I doing? The more discouragement and the more despair can set in. And to this point, to notice how it's slow, notice that Paul uses the singular fruit and not the plural fruits. In verse 22, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit grow in unity within us. They always grow together. So love, joy, peace, patience, all of those are not individual fruit that grow on their own, but they are rather descriptors of a singular growth that the Spirit works within us. These are much more like clusters of, a cluster of grapes, a cluster of grapes on a vine rather than apples on a tree. And so we can't look at this list and say, you know, I'm pretty strong in love, but I'm not so good with self-control. So I'll get a B plus on gentleness and a D minus on faithfulness. These fruit grow together. They don't grow in singularity. But of course, we experience them individually and not all together, and that's where the problem exists. So for example, due to our temperament, due to our personalities, we exhibit some of these more than others. So I'll pick on myself to illustrate this. I can imagine that if you have been around me for a while, that the first word that you would use to describe me is not joyful. That uh, I'm not the happy-go-lucky, smiling, laughing all of the time type. That's true. But a lot of that is due to personality. I am an introvert. I process things internally. I can have an entire conversation with myself and never have to open my mouth and be totally fine with that. But it doesn't mean that I don't don't need to grow in joy as well. But because I don't express my emotions outwardly in the ways that you would normally identify with joyful people, you might think, well, he's not joyful, but maybe the opposite would be he's peaceful. So... I can seem unflustered or composed or calm and level-headed when everyone around me is freaking out. And that's probably not true either. I'm freaking out on the inside, having the internal dialogue, and everyone else is just having it uh, on the outside. So does this mean that I need to grow in my joy fruit, but I'm doing okay in my peace fruit? No. It just means that that's the way that God has wired me, that I'm going to have natural tendencies towards some of this list, over others, and no doubt you will find the same in your life. But when the Spirit of God works in us to grow these in our life, that these fruit grow together, that love will grow alongside peace, that I'll grow in self-control at the same time that I grow in faithfulness. But this work takes, takes time, and the growth is slow, and it can be best discerned over time. So that is the speed. But secondly, let's look at the signs of Christian growth. While it's not uh, easy for, 
while it's easy for us to temporarily modify our behavior, or we can even change and have the appearance of growth, how do we know that we've really changed? I would love to report, you know, there's some really clear and easy signs of lasting spiritual growth, and I think we'll get into that at some point during this series about how we need other people, how we need the body of Christ to discern growth. But the point I'm making here is that Christian growth is not easily self-discernible, that I'm not a very good judge of how I'm doing. It's like my son trying to measure himself on the growth chart on our wall. You know, he can hold his hand up against the top of his head and turn around really quickly to see how much he's grown, but it's subject to his wanting to appear taller than he really is, and it's a lot of guesswork. It's hard for me to know, am I more loving? Am I more joyful? Am I more patient, more self-controlled? Because I'm not a great judge of my own heart. I can distort the truth. I can overestimate my own progress. My motives are mixed. How can I know if I'm being more joyful or if I'm just trying to please the people around me? I'm just being nice to people so that they will like me. How can I know if I'm being more peaceful in a a hard situation, in an emotionally uh, hard situation, during the midst of a hard trial? How can I know if I'm being more peaceful? It could just be that I'm emotionally checked out and it's not peace that I'm experiencing. It's actually avoidance of a hard situation. This is why the Benjamin Franklin approach to Christian growth won't work for us. Our growth and our hearts are a lot more dynamic and a lot more complicated than we can put on the chart. Just like it's easy for us to confuse the fruit of the Spirit with our natural disposition, our personalities, it's easy to confuse growth with temporary behavior modification. And so what are we to do with this? We've looked at the speed and the signs. Thirdly, I want to look at the shape. Christian growth. If you were to think about, you know, ideally, this is, this is the perfect Christian. What does, if you were to chart their growth, what would you say it would look like? We would think, well, a, a growth chart of a Christian should be an arrow in an upward trajectory, that the growth is linear, regular, and over time you would say it is dramatic. That's what Ben Franklin was expecting, and we expect the same. But if we were honest about our own lives, many of us would testify that it can seem the exact opposite, that growth can seem sporadic at best. And yes, growth can seem linear, but the line can be pointing in the wrong direction. The line can be pointed downward. It's one of the reasons we're not handing progress charts out this summer, but there's so much, so much in us that wants to do that. I want to be able to show you a chart of how well I'm doing. Because it seems easy. You just tell me to do something, and I'll do it. Tell me to change my behavior, and I might be able to do it for a while. We think that growth looks like climbing a mountain, and one day we will reach the top. We're all little Benjamin Franklins headed toward moral perfection. But Christian growth, sanctification, the fruit of the Spirit developing in us from our perspective looks a lot more like spelunking in a cave than it does climbing a mountain. It's a downward descent into the cave of the human heart to expose sin and weakness and idols. It looks a lot more like meekness and humility and kindness rather than power and strength 
and aptitude. So let's come up for air for a second. We think about the first three sections of uh, the sermon. It could be a little depressing. At this point in the sermon, it might be a little depressing. Uh, We've learned that growth is slow. It's not easily discerned. And it can feel like a downward trajectory for us. This doesn't seem like a lot of good news. Did you really come here on Sunday morning to hear this bad news? But let me tell you, there is so much good news for us in the last point as we consider and remember the source of Christian growth. Because one of the obvious things that we miss when we read about and consider the fruit of the Spirit is that we forget whose fruit this is. Notice how Paul contrasts the work of the works of the flesh against the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are about you. They're about your effort and your activity. But when Paul writes of the fruit of the Spirit, he speaks of the empowerment and the activity of God and not our effort. The fruit of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit's work in my life. It is not the fruit of Martin. It is the fruit of the Spirit. But I want to make it about me. What do I need to do in order to grow this fruit in my life? If that is our focus, we will become frustrated. We'll make it about us. We'll become self-consumed and turn inward. Look again at these two lists in our passages, in our passage. Who is the focus of the works of the flesh? Sexual immorality, impurity, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, all of those. This list describe a life that is turned inward. This list is a, a picture of a heart that is turned in on itself. The works of the flesh are about self-centeredness. They're about what can I do to gratify my own desires. But who is the focus of the fruit of the Spirit? It's the exact opposite. It is off of myself and is turned towards others and towards God. If you think about it, it's the difference between a fan and a vacuum. Both of those move air, but they serve dramatically different purposes. A vacuum exists to pull everything to itself, to suck the air and everything to itself. A fan exists to push air away from itself. It is for the benefit of others. It receives air and then it pushes it to others. The works of the flesh are vacuum. It sucks everything in on itself. It's turned in on itself. The fruit of the Spirit is a fan that is oriented towards God and towards others. But also as we consider the source of growth Remember that growth as a Christian is growth that flows from your union with Christ and not into your union with Christ. It might be the most important thing you could hear this morning. That growth as a Christian flows from your union with Christ and not into your union with Christ. That is, the fruit of the Spirit grows in you because you are united to Christ. It's not once you reach a certain level, once you reach a certain maturity, then you will be united to Christ. Once you bear a certain amount of fruit, then you will be united to Christ. Think about a fruit tree. Think about oranges. The oranges that are hanging off of the tree, do those oranges give life to the tree? Or does the tree give life to the orange? The tree gives life to the fruit. The fruit grows and it gets its life from being connected to the tree, from abiding in the tree. It's not the other way around. This is the heresy 
that Paul was preaching against in Galatians. They were teaching that the fruit was required to give life to the tree. That it wasn't faith in Christ alone that made you right with God. It was all these other things that you needed to add to your faith. And so Paul is being consistent with the rest of the message of Galatians. That you are united to Christ by faith alone. And because you are united to Christ, growth is inevitable. While it's true that in this life, we will always struggle with our sin. We will always be in this body of sin. It will be what Paul describes earlier in Galatians 5 and what Paul describes in Romans 7. We will always struggle with sin, but at the same time, the fruit of the Spirit is growing in us, gradually, continually, and inevitably, because we are united to Christ. It's easy for us to look at our lives and think that we're not growing at all. Look back over the last few years and we think, well, nothing's happening. It it seems like I'm getting worse and not better. I see more and more of my sin and my failure, and what's going on? And it's easy to come and to hear a sermon like this and to think, well, I guess the solution is I just need to feel worse about myself. You know, that being a Christian just means that now all I need to do is to beat myself up and to feel depraved all the time because I'm not getting better. But I don't want you to leave feeling that way. But rather, I want you to leave with the assurance that if you are united to Christ, that growth is inevitable. For you not to see the fruit of the Spirit as a prescriptive list of qualities that you must attain, but rather for you to see the fruit of the Spirit as a descriptive list describing the person and the work of Jesus and describing the work that His Spirit is doing in your heart by faith. To see this as God working in you to conform you into the image of His Son. For you to see that your sanctification is just a certain as your justification, that it will not be left up to chance. That your sanctification is not your end of the bargain in the salvation equation. That your, your sanctification is just as much a work of God's grace in you as your justification, and that you have the promise that God will complete what He began in you. That if you are united to Christ, that your growth, your sanctification, is as true and as real as the risen Christ. And so then, the good, the valid question that we're left with is, what does this look like in my life right now? What am I to do with this? I'm assured that God is at work in me. But what do I do I do with that? Because from our perspective, growth looks much more like remembering than it does attaining. Growth looks like remembering your justification. Growth is remembering who you are. It is remembering the truth of the gospel. It is remembering and growing into what you already have in the gospel. It is being reminded over and over and over again that the gospel is true, that you are loved and accepted in Christ, that he loves you with a love that cannot and will not let you go. And for you to be reminded that in the face of your failures, that he was faithful and obedient in your place. That Jesus set off on a path to attain moral perfection and he succeeded. So when we lack in love and joy and peace and patience and the like, 
we look to Jesus and see that he got it right. That he is the perfect embodiment and expression of this fruit. That he got it right and he got it right for you. And so when I lack in love, I see Jesus loving in my place. I see his record counting for mine. That's the good news that we are to remember that God is at work. And so for us, growth does not look like a quest for moral perfection, but it, rather it looks like a continual cycle of repentance and faith, of seeing our sin, of seeing our need for a Savior, and then being reminded each and every time that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that's what we want to lay before you every time we gather as a church, whether it's in small groups, whether it's in kingdom communities or whatever forum we gather, whether it's Sunday morning when we're here together to be reminded to experience this cycle of repentance and faith for for us to see and to experience the deep love of Jesus in the face of our desperate need of him. And so take heart. If you are united to Christ, God is at work in you. And he will stop at nothing to complete the work that he has begun in you. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your work in us. We ask that you would remind us of what is true. Remind us again of your a deep love for us in the gospel. And we ask that you would free us uh, by your grace then to love and to serve others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.